Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Invite you to open a Bible to John's Gospel. This morning we're going to be reading and then studying John chapter 11, verses 28 through 46. 28 through 46. I'm going to pick up reading in verse 25, just so we have some context for where we left off a week ago, John chapter 11, picking up in verse 25, John records under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to Jesus. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead Four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. 
When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. (laughs) His hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. All right, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We do pray that you would bless us now with the grace of resurrection power in our own hearts, our own minds, our own lives, as we contemplate together as your people, your living and active word. Make it to live and act in us. We ask it for your glory and in your name. Amen. One of the uh, more interesting facts of the New Testament is that Jesus is never recorded as having laughed. I'm certain that he did. It's just not recorded anywhere that he did. But it is recorded in our text this morning that Jesus wept. That he was a man of sorrows a man who was greatly acquainted with grief. You hear that and you say, golly, Brian, what a way to start. That's terribly depressing. I'm not sure I was prepared for that. Stick with me. We'll see tears of sorrow become tears of joy in due time. But don't we want to know why Jesus cried? Think about that. Don't we want to know what made the Word made flesh weep? What made reality incarnate groan with grief? As His people, perhaps we need to recall this morning the fact that there are reasons to grieve. That it's okay to be broken over a broken world. That in fact, weeping here in this world is a hallmark of those who are set to inherit the world to come, Jesus says. I believe that's in Luke chapter 6, which brings to mind the saying, you know it, don't you? How things are not always as they seem. That seems to be the principle at play in our text today. Jesus is living, breathing reality. He's the manifestation of God. Things may not always be what they seem to us, but whatever a thing is to Jesus, that's what the thing is. Which is so helpful. If we would just see things the way that Jesus does, we'd see things as they really are. And what peace would then always immediately follow. Well, in our text today, all this concerns death and Jesus himself. Do we view death as it really is? Do we view death as Jesus does? A lot of that will have to do with whether we see Jesus Rightly, we see Jesus as he 
really is? Do we take what He says at face value? Is His Word our bond? Is our faith in Him a clear-sighted faith? Or, notwithstanding His Word, notwithstanding His work, will death, friend, will death still seem greater than Jesus to you? Well, off to the text in our first main heading about Jesus meeting with undue despair, grief, and disbelief. We pick up in verse 28. And I think there we do pick up on a high note. Jesus has cast shade on the power of death by dubbing himself the resurrection and the life. And hearing that, Martha has believed it. You see that? She ascends to the truth that all people and every principality will finally have to deal with Jesus. He is the life-giving Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, the Judge the living and the dead. Now, whether she fully embraces the implications of that for the immediate situation of her brother's passing, we'll soon come to see. But suffice it here to say, there is still more of Jesus for her great faith to embrace. And so we move along to see it, which brings us to Lazarus' other sister, Mary, by Martha, Jesus calls to Mary here, and we see that characteristic faith Martha and Lazarus and Mary, we see it in action. How I do thank God for John's vivid memory. Always so attentive to detail, capturing moments like this in living color. If we listen well to it, it's as brilliant as an iPhone snapshot in portrait mode. Okay? As soon as she hears, that Jesus is near and calling, she responds as quickly as her body is physically able to respond. Amid all other comforters and their consolations, she hops up and what does she do? She bolts to Jesus. Always the model disciple, Mary, shows us how we should respond to the word of Christ as he calls us out from the world's consolations to his consolations to communion with the resurrection and the life in a person. You see here in the text how she goes out readily, she goes out urgently, wherever and whenever to Christ. And by it, it's made clear that she, like Martha, had not lost her faith in Jesus. Her brother's death which she knows Jesus could have prevented, had not chilled the warmth of her affection or the warmth of her faith in who Jesus is. No amount of earthly comforters or earthly comforts could amount in her heart to the man Christ Jesus. And so she takes leave of them for him only, only, presuming to provide additional comfort at the tomb, they follow her, follower in the end where? Not to a tomb, but to Jesus. And there they find her as Mary always preferred to be found. Fallen. Verse 32, at his feet. What a posture. And what a testimony in it. It is common for the world to think. For the world to think. That in your going out to Jesus, you have left for a tomb. Okay. Don't you know that Jesus is a dead end? 
Don't you know in going after Him, you're, you're forfeiting your life. What are you doing? There's nothing but difficulty and despair and death at the feet of Jesus. Of course, the irony in that is in going out to Jesus, you actually go to life, which will look to the world like a death. Does it not? It'll look like dying daily, as Paul says. It'll look like self-sacrifice from one moment to another. It'll look like bearing a cross. It'll look like living not for this world, but for another world, which in turn, by God's grace, will preach to dead souls. You know, perhaps in going to Jesus, they haven't left for a tomb at all. Instead, maybe they've actually found something called eternal life. How they will die for it. And live for it. And what's more, how might it testify to folks who meaning to comfort you, find you as a matter of priority going out from them and falling at the feet of Jesus? Suffering is a great pulpit for those who in the depths of it continue to exalt Jesus. I had some friend of, friends of ours the other day uh, was a pastor and his wife, and she'd been struggling with cancer on and off for like two decades. Still relatively young. She passed away yesterday. And uh, the, the testimony that he gave about her is that she was, even to her last breath, clinging to her Savior. Right? And seeing that, seeing this, Are they not confronted? Is the world not confronted by a person who, at least in Mary's eyes, is sovereign over all the issues of life? Dear ones, when sorrows rise, at whose feet do we fall? Who is our hope in life and death? Hopefully our answer is as the songs answer. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Now and ever we confess Christ our hope in life and death. Now, do see for all of Mary's trust in Christ, it is still developmental. It's great, but developmental. She echoes Martha in verse 32. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And again, that is an incredible statement of faith. Would that we had more conversations as apparently she and Martha had where the back and forth was about how death turns back at the presence of Jesus. <laughs> what if, what if as a church our concentration say in prayer before service was, oh Lord come and make life to advance and death to retreat. Make the well better and the sick well and the dead to live. What if we so arranged ourselves best we can to have His attendance palpable as possible? 
that we never need lament, oh, if only He had been here. No doubt now, He always is here, really, truly. But again, but again, let us be a people who follow His feet for more. At the same time, though, there is some deficiency in Mary's faith, her great faith that now turns the text. It's a deficiency that's shared with her comforters, a deficiency that opens the dam of Christ's own affections. Yes, He has them. As He sees them weeping, and then hears the response to His own weeping, we're given to see two seemingly opposite affections in Him that actually coincide. And our task throughout verses 33 to 38 is to figure out what they are and then why they are. So first, you see in verse 33 that it's in response to their weeping, not that he wept. That's verse 35. But that it says, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. It's the same affection in verse 38 in response to how they respond to his weeping. And so as to this first affection, I'll just tell you that I'm in the camp that believes deeply moved there is a fairly lame translation of a word that I think comes across better as indignant. He was indignant in spirit. It's a word that can refer to the snorting of horses. That's this. John's point in verse 33 and again in verse 38 is not that Jesus is emotionally touched deeply grieved emotionally. He is that, but that comes across in verse 35. In these two verses, the idea is that Jesus is emotionally angry. He's indignant. He is spiritually peeved. It's an expression of righteous indignation. Not sinful anger, but righteous indignation. The resurrection and the life in the face of death is mad. And before we move to his weeping, we need to ask why. And this is where I remind us that Jesus sees things as they really are. And he sees here loved ones, even great believers like Mary, living in the grip of a lie. What is that lie? It's that death is greater than Jesus. What he sees in their weeping is utter and undue despair. Even Mary's words lightly smack of this kind of despair. They imply that however Jesus could have cut off death before death actually happened, now that it's happened, he cannot reverse it. So also in verse 36, that he loved Lazarus is true enough. But that his love is past tense now implies there is no more Lazarus to love now. And in verse 37 again, underneath the surface of a truth we find a falsehood. Yes, the great sight giver could have also kept Lazarus alive. But now that Lazarus is dead, what's the point? It's as if he's let them down. He's not lived up to his billing. He's not done what love, we think, 
would have done. Friends, let me just tell you, how sin does tempt us to think the worst about Jesus. It cannot stand Him. Nor that you and I believe anything good or true or excellent about Him. It majors in obscuring His person and His glory from the eyes of our souls. And so I take it it's not so much the people that have drawn out the holy ire of the living Lord, but all the traces of Satan's work in their hearts in this scene. It's a response of truth incarnate to the liar doing his best to exalt death and keep souls in the dark about it. Jesus is seeing the reality of the scene around him. It's that sinners he loves are unduly disturbed even despairing because they believe too much about death. And so he's ticked at sin and Satan and death and the manifest reality of at best disbelief. He's angry. Righteously so. But how he at the same time also longs then to deliver us from all of that. That's the shortest verse in the Bible. Verse 35. In that indignation, he asks them, where have you laid him? And it's upon their response, Lord, come and see that verse 35, what? Jesus also wept. Jesus wept. So he is hot at sin and death. And yet also Jesus weeps for the people who are caught in that lie. I want you to know, beloved, that our Savior is the farthest thing from unwilling to be touched by our infirmities. He is the farthest thing from unable to sympathize with us in our weeping with His better weeping. You don't see it again in the English, but... Uh, the word for his weeping is different than the one that's used for their weeping. It's different. And some of that difference is the volume. Their weeping is loud and boisterous, and his weeping is a little bit more quiet. That's some of the word there. But some of it is also, it has to also be a difference in perception. Their weeping is the byproduct of captivity to the lie of death's finality. His weeping is the overflow of love for those who are captive to the lie. And let's also just be aware of this, dear ones. Listen. Jesus is not ignorant of the eventual outcome. Why is He walked there? Why is He in Bethany at all? He knows he's about to turn undue despair into cause for joy. They're about to receive back their brother. He knows this. And even that does not keep him from sympathizing with suffering souls in the moment. He's not like, what are y'all doing? Chin up. Stop your grieving. And watch this. No, he still weeps. 
Because they weep as they do, he weeps as he does. And so we need to lay it to heart that Jesus knows the sweet outcome of history. And that Jesus knows the sweet outcome of our own Christian lives does not prevent him from pastorally knowing our deepest distresses from personally feeling what it is that we go through, from perfectly pitying us and moving from it to the Father and back to bring us His peace in believing. And remember, Jesus never changes. He's the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. There you go. What we see of Him here is still true of Him at this very moment. So take heart in your hurting. Pangs of death even are not all they seem to be. But so long as it is biblical, Jesus always is and more. So much then for His meeting with undue despair. He now moves second for his due praise, picking up in verse 38. The scenario before us has led the Lord to Lazarus' tomb. It's not unlike another one that would become rather prominent in the gospel story. It's a cave with a stone laid against it. And beginning to give his charge, it's like he takes this holy anger and this hopeful grief and he turns it into divine power. My son is uh, learning how to play outside receiver in tackle football. Uh, And they'll run this play where he catches it short, like at the line of scrimmage, and he has to follow his blocks, and he has to run really, really strong, violently, violently even, and he has to get some really tough yards. So the other day, uh, I pulled up some old Sammy Watkins highlights. Anybody remember Sammy Watkins? Okay. Pulled some of his highlights where he's doing the same thing. And in one instance, he catches the ball and he's surrounded by defenders. There's no opening anywhere. So he puts his head down and he runs through a guy. And the color commentator, he says this. You see, there was nowhere to go. He had to make a decision. So he put his foot in the ground and he turned it into power. There you go. Ran over him. Often to us, And in this scene, death seems an opponent. There's no getting around. There's no way through. And our color guy named John, he says, you think so? Well, let me tell you about what I saw. And that's what he does. Let me just go ahead and urge us not to be callous to the report that John gives as if these things are normal. They're not. In verse 39, he says, Jesus said, take away the stone. Yes, let's uncover the tomb. I've probably watched too many horror films, okay? Too many Tomb Raiders, right? Let's uncover the tomb. What is he doing? What is he doing? Clearly, Martha does not know what he's doing. She's not like, oh yeah, he's making an exit for my brother. No, she, the dead man's sister, it says, says, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. 
So I think John wants us to know that Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. He's so dead, in fact, that decay has begun to already set in. The, to, to open the tomb would be odiferous. Okay, it's going to smell what Jesus had taught her and what she had professed to believe just recently, same day, haven't exactly made their way into her operating system yet. She spoke better than she believes, which I'm willing to bet is fairly typical for all of us, especially in suffering, especially if we were witnessing something that had pretty much never been done before. It would seem out of this world, against the grain of nature. But isn't that just the point? Jesus means for us, as always, to believe in Him. Not to reject nature, just to understand that nature is not God. It's not the sovereign. It's not the ruler. Jesus wants our faith, verse 40, at all times to be rising to Him. So what does He say to Martha? He says, Did I not tell you, Martha, that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? That she would see that Jesus has power to overcome, to run through death of all kinds at any time. And to be sure, he means even more than that, doesn't he? Listen, we are going to see, we are going to see people see this, see this, and see nothing special about it. They see no glory in it. Nothing more than just the fact of it. Nothing that would ignite a faith in Jesus. But believers, Jesus is saying, seeing it, we'll see in Him the very glory of God. They will see this with relish. They will see this with joy. They will see this with an increase of faith in Jesus as the Christ of God and all that that entails. And so that said, we see now, they're all rather curious, aren't they? It says, verse 41, So, having said this, the response to what Jesus just said, they took away the stone. The exit is opened. And it is low-key amazing what Jesus then does. Maybe you remember in Numbers chapter 20 how Moses, surrounded by an unbelieving people, but with a sign to show them, did not uphold God as holy in the eyes of of the people, didn't himself in that hour believe in God such that he acted as if he was mighty, independent of the Lord to give the people life himself. And because of this, you may remember, Moses was not allowed to bring the people into the land. Jesus is better than Moses. 
as the Son, Jesus could, He could have just taken matters into His own hands right here. But He does not. He, the Lord, is humble. He refuses to do anything apart from recognizing His Father. He upholds Him in the eyes of the people. And that says not that He is not God, but that He is. That He is the divine Christ. That Jesus is, in the verse 42, the God-sent Savior in whom we sinners, if we would live and enter the land, must believe. So, let's be clear. So we come into verses 43 and 44, that the stakes are nothing short of the necessity and efficacy of faith in Jesus as the divine Christ for new resurrection, everlasting life in the presence of God. Those are the stakes. So here we go. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. Can you picture it? The thoughts on their faces. Did that just happen? Did he just... Did he just command a deceased and decaying man to come out of the tomb? How long do you think it was until they began to slowly creep around that exit? <laughs> See what if anything would happen. And what do you think they thought when, verse 44, John records, the man who had died came When Lazarus emerged from the tomb, seeing it ourselves, as it were, do we understand what we're seeing? Do we? <laughs> Jesus commanded an odorously dead man to action, to do something demanding the resumption of life. He commands him to, to breathe again. He commands him to organically function again. I know some of you biologists in here. Okay? He commands him to organically function again. He commands him to summon his muscular strength again. Jesus commands the dead man to live again, to get up from the grave and come out to life. And the man did. You've just seen the glory of God in the man Christ Jesus. Believe. This is not a fable. It's fabulous. But it's not a fable. In fact, as we'll see, it left an indelible mark on the whole society. Jesus is going to die in some part because He really did this. Go read the rest of the passage. And it obviously was not lost, to say the least, on John. Again, what a memory. 
It is perhaps in recollecting awe that he adds these final details, how Lazarus came out. And can you imagine, like, his hands and his feet are bound with linen cloths, and he's got a headband covering his eyes. He's blind. He's wearing apparel that is unfitting for a living person. Which Jesus, never too amazed with himself to forget the basic needs of others, addresses. Verse 45, unbind him and let him go. So there it is. Death is not all that it seems to be. But Jesus is the resurrection and the life. He's the Lord of life and death. He's the sovereign apparently over the world of souls, whether here or departed. By Him, God will raise humanity at last and judge us all in righteousness. And that is why we all must all believe in Him. Everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? The question brings us to our close in verses 45 and 46. And Jesus making unbelief unbelievable. Given this, given this, there is no good reason for unbelief. So, John says, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But, what an unbelievable but. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They tattled. What we're meant to see there is that no one denied that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. Everyone, whether they went on to believe in Him as the Christ of God or not, believed Jesus had done this thing. Everyone. And many who saw it believed in Him. They lived. What they saw with their eyes entered by the mercy, by the grace of God into their hearts. Apparently, Lazarus' resurrection was not the only resurrection that occurred that day. Some who had come to the tomb dead in their trespasses and sins were born again. Jesus became all their hope in life and death. What happened in Lazarus' body apparently happened in their souls. And isn't this how it happens, dear ones? We're living but dead, hating but loving our sin. We hear the gospel, and suddenly, by it, he calls us by name with the voice of the Almighty. Live! Come out, be loosed, see me. And we do. <laughs> and we believe and, and we're saved and, and we're never the same again. <laughs> how we must take the gospel to people. One thing that hit me this week was how Lazarus might have felt about the whole thing. One minute, he's in the paradise of the pre-risen Christ. 
next minute sucked back into this old world. And I just thought to myself, what a bummer. (laughs) And something else hit me. Just how important evangelism is. How highly we ought to think about it. How urgently we ought to be about it. Have you ever been able to relate to Paul's words in Romans chapter 9 verse 3? Oh, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ if only certain souls would then be saved. He's saying he would miss out on heaven if it would spare folks going to hell. Now, that's all a hypothetical. To communicate a passion for which I, for one, could stand to grow immensely. But Lazarus now, Lazarus now, was quite literally drawn out of paradise. Today, you will be with me in paradise. That's what he said to the thief on the cross. Okay? So Lazarus is literally drawn out of paradise. Why? He's drawn out of paradise for a time just to make a point about Jesus for the salvation of souls. and Talk about an advantage in the work. Yeah, I'm the guy who was in glory because of Jesus. But Jesus raised me from the dead to live a little longer and tell you about Jesus. And already in our text, His return is bearing fruit. People are believing. And it will bear so much fruit. We're going to see in chapter 12 that Jesus' enemies they're eventually going to want to kill the resurrected man. Not Jesus, Lazarus. But don't you know, he must have come to put a heavy, a heavenly weight on the worth and salvation of souls then. I doubt it was ever, you raised me for this? But rather, oh I see, you raised me for this. Dear one, He's raised you for this, if you're a Christian. Is it in our bones to seek the salvation of souls? And friend, if you're unbelieving, I think the text makes us all bound to ask, why? Is it not unbelievable that people saw Jesus raise a man from the dead such that they went and reported it and did not themselves then believe the report that they themselves shared. How can you see this and not believe but tattle instead? Very simply, because your devotion to something else like sin or right standing with men or basic self-consumption and rebellion is greater than any devotion to the truth that will change all of that. That will set you free. Put another way, though you do see, you don't see. Lest truly seeing, 
you believe the truth. In the Bible, seeing is not always believing. But believing, as Jesus said, is always seeing in Him and His work the very glory of God. And friend, I'll just tell you, this is not the greatest thing that Jesus is going to do. This is just a type of what He would do. He Himself is going to go on to die for our sins and be buried. And on the third day, He's going to be raised from the dead by the power of an indestructible life, Savior of everyone who believes. Some here in the passage let this incredible work, raising Lazarus from the dead, they let it go to waste. Let me urge you not to let this word go to waste this morning. Turn from your sins and believe in Jesus. He will save you. Through and through. Beloved, these verses are meant as a reality check for something every single one of us in this room, unless he returns first, every single one of us are going to really face. Jesus is greater than death. He's the resurrection and the life. So again, do we believe this? Do we believe what we've seen in this passage is a lesser historical depiction ahead of time of our own greater resurrection at a future time? That same word, beloved, that same word that pierced the tomb of Lazarus to draw him out of death and into life will one day also pierce your own. Your grave, dear ones, is not what it may seem to be. Sure as you've been born again to new life, Christ will also raise you up to everlasting life. Maybe it's a new thought. Maybe this is a new thought. But it's reality nonetheless. That the death we die and the place we're laid to rest eventually are not the ones that we deserved. Because Jesus died. And because Jesus was buried for us. Neither of those things will have a lasting grip upon us. As Lazarus was, so also we shall be raised. More than that, more than that. As Christ was, the Bible tells us, so also we shall be raised like Him. Does it show That we believe this. That come what may, we do not fear the grave. That our hope in life and death is Christ alone. Christ alone. Our only confidence that our souls to Him belong. That He holds our days within His hand. That nothing comes apart from His command. And that what will keep us to the end is the love of Christ where the whole account started in which we stand. It is time for us to believe reality. Time, if you will, 
perhaps, for tears of joy. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for loving us so perfectly well. Take your word, as always, plant it deep in us. May it bear much fruit of peace and joy and righteousness in believing you. Get much glory for yourself from it, the resurrection and the life. We ask it in your name. Amen.